0: The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com.
1: We're in major messages from the minor prophets. And we are in Micah today. And we're going to be in Micah 1, starting in verse 2. Attention! Let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel? Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital.
0: Hey, good morning, Crosspoint. How we doing? Good. Happy Mother's Day. Again, as Beth mentioned, we're, uh, we're, we're excited to celebrate with you guys. It really should be a whole weekend that we celebrate moms for everything that they so we're happy that you're with us this morning. encourage you, if you didn't get your Bibles yet, go ahead and flip to Micah. We're going to be camping out in there quite a bit. So we want you to see what it is that we're talking about. But I want to, I want to pray over our time together before we jump in. So if you join me. Jesus, we just love you and we praise you. Thank you for every person that's in this room to, uh, this morning. Not tonight, this morning. It's morning. Uh, Lord, we love you. And we just, uh, we ask that whatever we came in here with, Lord, the pressures, the burdens any of it, Lord, that it would just be taken off right now. Lord, that we would just hear whatever it is that you have to say and that we would walk out of this room lives changed and transformed. So we give this time to you. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. So i had been warned over and over and over again. And I... I think I even tried to convince myself at some point but I just wasn't ready to listen. I wasn't willing to give that up. Give it up. And we walk into court that day and I'm standing before the judge, <laughs> trembling in terror. Cuz all the accusations were true. And I'd been caught red-handed. And there was no denying it anymore. And I was ready to face whatever consequences were going to come my way that day. And of course, the story that I'm sharing is 14 years ago now that I got caught riding my skateboard without a helmet on the way to school. (laughs) (coughs) 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 Motor officer Jay Frabosi out of Marietta PD gave me a ticket right outside of Marietta Mesa High School. He was ruthless. My mom got a ticket from him once too, so he, he liked giving tickets. But this seemingly insignificant thing that I thought wasn't that big of a deal turned out to be a problem that was a lot deeper than I had originally realized. And I needed a good judge to talk to me about that. We're about to jump into a story this morning that's surprisingly similar to that And as we encourage our students often, before we jump into any uh, story in the Bible, we should always take some time to kind of understand, okay, where are we at? What's going on? Who's this guy Micah that we're talking about? And so some of you have probably heard the name before, but Micah was a prophet sent by God to minister to the kingdom of Israel. Uh, His name actually means, who is like God? And I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that. Who is like God? Uh, It says here in chapter 1 that Micah was ministering during the reigns of Joham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these kings in Judah... Uh, you can actually read about some of this in the book of Second Kings. You can check that out if you're interested. Uh, but to kind of give you a brief overview of what's going on right now in this time in history, this is around 750 a- BC before, or sorry, when Micah starts prophesying to the people. And what's going on right now is that the kingdom of, or the nation of Israel, is divided at this point, right? So you have the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah in its capital, Jerusalem, right? And so Micah is sent to minister to both of these kingdoms, actually, and this is around 100 years before Babylon would actually conquer Judah and the exile of the Israelites. And so that's what's going on right now. Uh, and you're probably familiar with Micah a little bit. You've probably heard it before, even if you haven't read it. There's a famous verse in there that talks about Jesus actually coming one day, this coming Messiah. It's Micah 5.2, so that might ring a bell if you check that out today. But what's happening is that things are, things are not going well right now for the nation of Israel. Their rebellion against God is great. And not just Micah, but prophet after prophet after prophet is sent to warn them over and over and over again, turn back to God, right? and they don't want to listen. Listen. And so what God has done is he's sent Micah to subpoena the people and God actually puts them on trial for the rebellion. And this is kind of the theme of Micah and we'll unpack that a little bit. But the people are on trial for their rebellion against him. And so here's the game plan today. Here's what I'd like to do with you. Here's, what we're gonna, here's how we're going to break things down. I want to talk to you about the problem, the practice, and then the promise. Okay, so the problem of sin and rebellion. The problem of these people's sins, our sin, right? And then the practice, the practice that God actually desires from his people, and then the amazing promise that's given to us at the end of this trial, okay? And so we're going to take a look first at this problem, the problem of sin. And so I I love uh, fill in the blanks, so you guys will have note sheets there where you can fill in some stuff. I'm going to give you the first one right now. Here's the problem. It's your, my, and our sin. Your my, and our sin. It's what Beth just read for us in chapter 1, verse 5. It says, why is this happening? Why is God accusing his people? Why are these things about to happen? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Not because of their rebellion, or that nation's rebellion, or these people over here. No, their rebellion. Our rebellion. Our sin. Your sin. My sin. It's our rebellion that has put us on trial Against God. And, and that's kind of chapter 1 in a nutshell. And as we go to chapter 2 and chapter 3, Micah actually starts to list out all the accusations that God has against his people. And I want to share a few of these with you guys. And I want you to look carefully as we check some of these out. Because they're interesting. Starting in Micah chapter 2, verse 2. It says, when you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. And then skipping over to chapter 3, verse 1, another kind of accusation here. Listen, you leaders of Israel, you're supposed to know right from wrong. But you are the very ones who hate good and love evil. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. And as graphic as that kind of sounds right there, the idea that, uh, that Micah's painting for us, it's this metaphor for what I'm kind of dubbing cannibalistic leadership. It's, it's this full-on assault against the people, fully taking advantage of them, just absolute oppression. What can we get out of these people for our own interests? It's this idea of cannibalistic leadership. And I don't know when you think about sin and rebellion against God if, uh, if some of these things are what come to mind immediately. Like fraud, cheating, stealing, like taking advantage of people. Like these are the things that God wants to accuse his people of. Not murder, not sexual immorality, or all these other big sins that I feel like we think of often when we think of sin, right? It's actually this sin that looks like it could be pretty easy to mitigate, pretty easy to deflect from. Like, oh, come on. That's not that big of a deal. And it's actually how the people respond in chapter 2, verse 6, as Micah begins to prophesy against them. They say, don't say such things, the people respond. Don't prophesy like that. Such disasters will never come our way. And these people are absolutely blind in the middle of the sin that is separating them from God. And they don't even recognize it. And as we read about these people doing this, is this not something that you and I tend to do here in 2023 in this room? Right? Like, Our sin, when we think of the, the behaviors and, and things that we do, that we can be a little blind to sometimes. Our team talked a lot about this, like what are some of those things that you just miss? Right? We thought about like the little white lies that just kind of become normal parts of your speech and you're just lying every chance that you get for no, re- that you can for no reason at all, right? There's not even a, a reason to lie, but it just becomes the norm. Um, we, we talked about greed uh, and Pastor Rob reminded us of some lyrics from Bono from the band U2 uh, and Pastor Steve loves U2 if you didn't know that, so he likes this, but the line goes, don't believe in riches, but you should see where I live yeah. and it's true. We wrestle with greed. Think about anger. Like the anger that doesn't really explode out on people around you, but it comes out when you're behind the steering wheel. That's for sure. Or maybe it's the anger that doesn't even manifest verbally at all. It's actually growing roots of bitterness inside your heart. And rather than it coming out verbally, it's just damaging and destroying relationships around you and impacting the people that are closest to you. For me, it's, it's envy, personally. It's something that I was blind to for a number of years. I didn't recognize that I was wrestling with it, right? I'd look at what other people had and their gifts and their strengths and say, well, I can't, i be more like that. Why can't I be more organized? Why can't I be like this? Why why did you make me this way, God? And instead of recognizing that he created me unique and specific for his purposes, breaking the heart of God and, and looking at what everybody else had, this seemingly small thing that's like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. No, but it really is. They really are, when you actually think about it. When we read the Bible and we say, ah, uh, maybe God didn't actually mean that, right? Well, let's look at this translation here, and, and maybe that's not what he was talking about. Or maybe it was, that was just for those people. That was th- for those people in Corinth, not for us. We're exempt from that, right? That's, that doesn't apply to us. We also do this when we read scripture where we compare our sin with theirs. And we say, oh, I'd never do that. Can you imagine? Meanwhile, just absolutely blinded by the sin that you and I walk in every day. And we compare it to these people. And a side note on that, this comparison. um, Jumping forward a bit in the story of scripture. You know who tended to get into the most trouble with Jesus? The religious leaders. The Pharisees. Jesus devotes chapters upon chapters criticizing them. These people who thought they had it all together, that they were really good and just absolutely destroying the people around them for their sin, not recognizing the things that they were wrestling with that were breaking the heart of God as well. Then we have these little catchphrases, right? Like, uh, what is it? God hates sin but not sinners, right? Making it really easy to disassociate from our sin. Well, God hates my sin, right? And I can just detach from that and say, well, that's just my sin. That's not me. And I, I, negating all responsibility for our actions and for our behavior, right? And this is the problem, church, the problem of sin and how it breaks the heart of God when we're blinded by these things. And then with that, when we talk about this problem, we also have to look at God's response to it because it's here in the book. It's here in Micah. How does God feel about this? When, when his people walk and, and act this way, how does God respond? How does he feel? And the second point on your note sheet that you can write down is this. God's response to sin is wrath. God's response to sin is wrath. And I don't think that we like that very much. But I want to pause before we continue talking about this idea. And I need you guys to kind of listen closely for a second. If we are going to truly grasp the promise that God gives us at the end of this book, we have to look at the reality of God's wrath. We have to. It's here. And it's here for a reason. But if we're going to really understand the promise and the weight of it, then we have to take a look at it. And so the first question that comes up whenever we talk about God's wrath is, how could a loving God have wrath? How? How could this loving God that you talk about, he loves his people, how could he hate sin so much? How could he have such wrath? And the idea that I thought through is this, and I've heard it before, so this is not me, this is people smarter than I that have talked about this. But it's the idea that the more you love something, the more capable you are of wrath. The more you love something, the more capable you are of wrath. And, like, is this not true, church? Like, if you left service today and you walked back to your car and someone's driving down the street and they roll their window down and they go, hey, hey, I don't ever want to see you again. And you're like, okay, yeah, me neither. Bye, right? Like, I don't want to see you again either. That was weird. And then you go on about your day. But you leave service and your best friend calls you and says the same thing. That changes the whole story. That changes your entire response to that, right? Because the more we love something, the more capable we are of wrath. The more we're capable we are of being hurt and affected by that. And I feel like we we tend to take away God's emotions and his affection sometimes and think that he's just this, this figure up in the sky rather than his heart and his care and his passion for his people and his creation. And when we turn away from him, his response to that is wrath. And I get, church, that we have a difficult time with this. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to beat around the bush with that. This is a hard concept to, to wrestle with because, honestly, we, we have a warped view of what wrath actually looks like. That, that's the problem. See, because the wrath that you and I perceive that we've experienced, it's tainted by sin and full of hate and anger. And that's not the wrath of God. Right? And that's, that's wrath that some of us in this room have been victim of. And so we get what that feels like. And so so it's like, oh, I don't want a God like that. Well, it's not the case, right? And it's what James chapter 1 verse 20 says. James says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So when we talk about wrath, we have to understand that this is not the wrath of man. This is the holiness and goodness and justice and righteousness of a loving God who's confronting sin and evil in the world. That's what it is. It is not the wrath of man that's tainted by sin and full of hate. And to say that God does not have wrath against sin is effectively saying that God doesn't care about anything enough that he doesn't love anything enough to be wrathful. He doesn't care, right? And and we can easily fall victim to this when we treat God and we treat his word like it's this thin and meaningless thing and he just doesn't care about the sin and the destruction that goes on all around us, that you and I have both experienced all all the time. And so when we say, God couldn't have wrath, we're saying he doesn't care. And this might be something that you have to wrestle with today, But I'm going to tell you this, I really want a God that loves and cares about me enough to put an end to the destruction and chaos that i found all around us. I want a God that cares that much. I don't want a flippant God who's just like, eh, whatever. But it's easy to fall victim to that. And it's easy to be blinded by our sin in the midst of that and say, well, God couldn't possibly have wrath. Against and so as we continue to look at God's response to sin, we're going to kind of skim through the book of Micah now. We're going to hop over to chapter 6, where God has now put his people on trial. Micah has prophesied about God's judgment and the wrath because of their rebellion against him. And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, the people are on trial now. Listen to, the, what, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. I just want to pause for a second. I love how God kind of gives an opportunity for the people to present a case against him, and then it just moves on, because there is no case that we can present against him. That's just really funny. I like that. We have nothing. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. And then I love this. Don't miss this. Verse 3. This is God speaking now. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you so tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal? When I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. I love the case that God brings before his people here. He starts listing out these things like, don't you remember everything that I've done for you? you, Don't you remember Egypt when you were slaves for 400 years and I rescued you from the grip of Pharaoh? And then this story, of, and maybe you've heard of this, but this is out of the book of Numbers where Balak hires this guy, Balaam, to curse the people, right? And as Balaam goes to try and do this, God literally fills his mouth with blessings instead of curses. And Balak's like, what are you doing? I, I, I hired you to curse him. He's like, I can't even, I just, I, God's like using the words out of my mouth. I can't even curse him if I tried, right? And just You see God's faithfulness over and over and over again. And he says, what have I done to make you so tired of me? that you turn away from me and you see the heart and emotion of God come out here in this text? I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. After getting that ticket 14 years ago, we went to court, um, someone asked me last night, if I remember the judge's name, I don't. so sorry. But it was in it was here in Temecula, and we're standing there, and everything was true, right? There was no more denying what I was doing, right? I'd been caught red-handed doing this stupid thing, warned over and over again, and as I'm standing there, realizing that all this is true, and, I'm, and I am guilty of, of all charges, right? It sounds really intense. It's just a helmet, right? But racking my brain in that moment trying to say okay what do I need to do next right what am I going to do how am I going to appease my parents how am I going to fix this and I love what the judge said and I'll never forget because it stopped me in my tracks there as I was racking my brain he said listen to your parents they love you they want to protect you and they have your best interest in mind that's so true We tell our students sometimes, I say, when your parents tell you not to run into the middle of the street, why are they doing that? And they always say, because they want to protect me, right? And I say, you really think they gave you that rule just to throw another rule in your life and be like, ha-ha, there you go, you got to follow that, right? Like, no, it's for a reason that, 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 that they give us these warnings. They want to protect us, they love us, they want what's best for us. And I think that this is really the heart of God coming out here. And we're going we're gonna to talk about this next. So shifting from the problem, again, thank you for bearing with me. I, I know that that's a lot to take in, this problem of sin and the wrath of God, right? And so the people are on trial now. We're going to shift over to the practice, the practices that God truly desires, right? So if, if God hates sin, if we take that seriously, that God hates sin and that sin has created a multitude of problems, which I think we can all agree with that it has, then what is it then that God actually desires from us? You see, when we're confronted with the reality of our sin, I think we're, we're prone to respond like the Israelites do here in chapter 6. So God lays out this case against them. What have I done? Don't you remember? And then in verse 6, this is the people's response. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings Should we bow before God Most High with offerings of yearly calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? They're effectively trying to say, what what do we do? Let's let's fix this. What what can we do? And before we read this next verse, I want to... Help us see that this is something that I feel like we tend to do often as well. Maybe not the same language that they use, but we think that as long as I just stop this, this behavior right here, as long as I just stop, then God will be happy with me. As long as I just change my behavior, he'll be happy, right? If if I just wake up a few days early this week and I read my Bible and I pray really well, And I just have a really good prayer that God's going to be happy with me. It's going to fix this, right? Or maybe if I attend church for the next six weeks and don't miss a Sunday. Or I just go to youth group on a Tuesday night. Everything's going to get better. Or even better, right? If I go to that service and I just feel bad enough about what I've done and I cry during worship. Or if I lift my hands during worship, right? God's going to be happy with me. He'll be pleased. And that's going to fix this. And I feel like we try to find a quick fix for our sin and rebellion against God. And I'm going to tell you this. God desires for our lives and our hearts to be transformed, not just our behavior modified. God desires for your heart and your life to be changed and transformed. There is no quick fix here. And I'm going to show that to you. What's that? The last part? God desires desires your lives and your hearts to be transformed, not just your behavior modified. I'm glad I remembered that off the top of my head. That was good. And so they rack their brains, they try and find this quick fix, and then this is how Micah responds. Verse 8 Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Some other translations say that first part. Instead of doing what is right, it says, do justly. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And that's the next point on your note sheet. You can write that down. The practices that God desires from us. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. i want going to break these three things down because they're incredibly important. Okay, So do justly. right? I said I like that terminology better, right? Because when I think of what is right... I think, okay, that's just following the rules. That's doing what's right. But see, when I think about just, justice, I think that requires a lot more to change in my heart when I think about how I interact with people, how I talk to people, how I treat them. So doing justly is not a quick fix. That requires something to change in here first. right? So what this means, cross point, is that we're not going to be, we're not going to turn into those church Karen memes that you see online, right? Where just left worship service going to lunch, but I'm going to treat the waitress like garbage because she put tomatoes on my sandwich. Even though I specifically asked her not to put tomatoes on my sandwich, right? And we see this. Like, dude, you just left a worship service and this is how you're treating people? That means do justly. We're going to do right by people. And then love Mercy. We love mercy because God is merciful. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's his first public sermon, right? I always say, people's first words, and their last words, super important. So this is the first public sermon. It's one of the first few things that Jesus says in verse 7. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You want mercy from God? Show it. If you want mercy, show it to others. Going back to the Pharisees that we talked about a few minutes ago. Remember, they tended to get into the most trouble with Jesus. Why? Because they lacked this quite significantly. They did not show mercy very well. And what this means for us is that we have to recognize that we are just as broken and in need of Jesus as everybody else around us. And when you recognize that, you will show mercy to other people. But see, when we act like the Pharisees sometimes and we think we've got it all together and everybody else around us is broken and they really need Jesus, but I don't, we miss it. I said that Jesus devoted like chapters on chapters of talking about the Pharisees and the way that they treated people. Matthew 23 is great. You should check that out sometime. But I want to share a few verses from you of Matthew chapter 9 real quick. Verses 11 through 13, this is Matthew chapter 9. Uh, The story here is this is, Jesus has kind of called Matthew, who's the tax collector, not really good people back then, right? They just wanted your money, they were going to do everything they could to take it, right? So people didn't want to associate with tax collectors, they were awful. Uh, Matthew invites Jesus to dinner. And it says that he went with Matthew and other disreputable sinners. In verse 11 it says this, but when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? That verse rocks me every time I read that. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. When you realize that you are just as broken as everybody else around you, you will show mercy to them. We love mercy because God has been merciful to us. And this is who we are here at Crosspoint. We're all kinds of people discovering and following Jesus. You've probably heard that so many times now. you're like, I get it, yes, all kinds of people. But it's true, church. We are all kinds of people discovering and following Jesus. That means people that look like you and dress like you and everybody else that doesn't. You're like, I would never wear that, right? (laughs) Or I would never do what they've done. That means all of us. And then walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. I don't know if you've thought about this, but all sin, whether we recognize it or, or not comes from a lack of trust in God. All sin, whether we recognize it or not, comes from our lack of trust in God. Trusting not in who he is, in his design, in his desires, and say, God, I'm going this way instead. No, thank you. I'm a better God than you are. right? And that's kind of how we treat ourselves. I know better. I'm a better God. When what? We have a measly 70, 80, 90 years here, if we're lucky. And we want to challenge the God who created the universe on what he says is best for us. He's been around since the beginning of time, church. I think he knows what he's doing. And I think it's time that we should walk closely and humbly with him. I love the way that, uh, actually, before I say that, we, we talk about humility sometimes. We say humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? It's just thinking about yourself less. And I think that that's a good catchphrase. But I think something that's uh, even more important is what Charles, Charles Spurgeon says. He says, when you have found out what you really are, you will be humble. For you are nothing to boast of. To be humble will make you safe. He says, not just thinking about yourself less, which is good, but when you actually recognize who you are in comparison to who God is, that changes the whole game, church. When I realize that I'm not God and he is that's it. We took our students to winter camp in January, and our speaker was fantastic. And I'll never forget what he said. He he was concentrating on this idea. He said, "Walk, stay in God's shadow, stay within His shadow." And I loved that image, like staying so close to God. Like I'm just I'm walking with Him, and I'm staying in His shadow, right? And when I step out of the shadow, that's when things go wrong, right? I, I'm going to go this way, God. I know You're still going that way, but I'm going to go over here, right? No, it's. I'm going to stay in your shadow because I know that I'm, it's going to keep me safe. I know that you love me. I know that you want to protect me. And just like that judge told me, I know that you have my best interests in mind. Do you trust that, church? Do you really trust that God has your best interests in mind? That when he says, do this, don't do this, stay over here, stay away from there, that that's for your best interest. Because he knows what lays at the end uh, of sin. And it's destruction and chaos and death. And he wants to protect all of us from that. He has our best interest in mind. I'm going to say it again. This practice that God desires comes from a life and a heart that's been transformed. Not just behavior modified. This is what he desires from us. I told you at the beginning of the message... That um, in order for us to really understand this promise that we're about to talk about, that we had to take a look at God's wrath. And I appreciate you doing that with me. It's here for a reason, it's important. And so I want to move on now to talk about this promise, right? So the, the people are on trial, God has listed out the accusations. What have I done? The people are saying, What should we do? God gives us the real practice, this is what I desire and when you think that it would probably end there, right? Okay, this is what I desire. Now go and do that, right? It doesn't end there. Micah chapter 7 starting at verse 18. This is the best part. I get so excited about this. Micah 7:18. Where is another god like you? You guys remember what Micah's name meant? Who is like God? It's so appropriate that he wraps up the book like this. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness, and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. And I just want you to imagine this scenario playing out in a courtroom, right? You've stood before the judge, you've been convicted and tried, and then the judge says, you know what? You deserve this punishment, but I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna take it for you. I'm actually going to pardon you from that. And you're like, what? Like, this doesn't make any sense, right? And that's the whole point is that it doesn't make sense. And so imagine this actually playing out, but this is what our God has done for us, church. But on the flip side of that, if God's response to sin is wrath, then why would he do this? If God is this serious about sin... If he hates our rebellion that much, then why would he pardon us from the guilt? Why would he do it? That doesn't line up. That doesn't make sense. And I love answering questions that you guys are asking, so let's do that. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this for you guys. This is fantastic. And remember who's writing this. This is Paul, mind you, who's writing this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of all those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Some other translations say God's wrath. We were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. But God. And we love that phrase around here, man. We've got stickers on the back of our cars that say that. But God is so rich in what? Mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And I love in parentheses here, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So as we rack our brains on trying to figure out what we should do, right? And as God gives us these practices, he also says, here's the practices, but guess what? I know you can't actually do that on your own. So I'm gonna do it for you. And I'm gonna take that punishment for you. The last point on your note sheet is this, and then we're gonna talk. And I'm going to get excited, so be ready. <laughs> God's wrath has been satisfied. God's wrath has been satisfied. That should put a smile on your face, church. When we consider the fact that God hates sin and rebellion so much, and He is so serious about it that His wrath has been satisfied, this changes everything for us. And what Paul's talking about here is. What Jesus did for you and I, church. And I don't know if you've thought about this much lately. Or maybe you're familiar with kind of the Christian faith. You're not really sure about some things. You've heard about Jesus before. You're like, yeah, I think he was like a really good teacher, right? All these things. But you haven't really taken a look at the reality of what happened that day when he died on a cross. That 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe loved you and I so much that he stepped off of his throne and took the punishment that you and I deserve, that he was beaten and mocked and scorned by people. He lived a perfect life and then was hung on a cross, dying a criminal's death, And we've shared with you before kind of the reality of the cross and that death and how excruciating that is, right? As you're hanging there and trying to support yourself so that you don't suffocate, but you can't do that. And so you sink down and you just endlessly suffocate. And it's one of the worst forms of torture known to man. And as excruciating as that is, that's not even the end of it. Because in his death, he took the wrath of God for the sins of the world. That means your sin and my sin from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Five minutes after you leave here so that you and I would never have to. And the promise that is extended to us is that God has pardoned us from our sin because of that. And so when we see God's wrath and we go, oh, we have to understand that Jesus took that for us. Jesus took that for us, right? And because of this cross, that means that if you've decided to make that choice to follow Jesus, that if you believe that that sacrifice he made was for you, then that means you're not under God's wrath anymore, church. That means that you're under the banner of his mercy. That means that the pardon has been uh, extended to you, and it's yours for the taking. It's yours for the taking. We, uh, We sing a song here sometimes. Actually, no, I don't think we've sung it here, but there's a really great song. And one of the first lines, (laughs) I listen to it a lot, that's why. It says, it wasn't for nothing that you shed your blood. It wasn't for nothing that you shed your blood. Church, God's mercy has been extended to you. It's time you start acting like it. You're not under his wrath anymore. Our worship team is going to come up And as we uh, get ready here to sing some songs to Jesus for this sacrifice that he made for us, for this pardon that's been extended, I wanted you guys to know that my, my heart has been heavy the last few days as I've prepared for this. As I thought a lot about the fact that there's many of us in this room that come here week in and week out that have made this decision to follow Jesus but we're still living like we're under God's wrath. Like God's just perpetually mad at you when you make mistakes. When you beat yourself into the ground and cycle through shame and it just destroys you and you think that God's looking at you like that and he's saying, I'm not looking at you like that when he sees Jesus in front of you, your sin is no longer gone, as Micah said, that it's thrown to the depths of the ocean. What Psalm says, that God has wiped our sins as far from us as the east is from the west, that you are not under God's wrath. And that it's time we start acting like it, church. You're under the banner of mercy. Do you believe that? Are you walking in that freedom that he's extended to you? Like your sin is too great? Remember Ephesians, Paul, who we just read? You guys know Paul, right? You remember Paul. He called himself the chief of all sinners. Remember that? So, if Paul, you know, the guy that was imprisoning and murdering Christians and persecuting them, if he can write this, if that pardon is extended to him, then it's available to you, cross point. Like it's right here on the table in front of you, and God's just saying it's yours. I took the punishment for you so that you wouldn't have to. We're going to sing some songs now to Jesus and about Jesus for the sacrifice. We want to invite you during this time to the four corners of the room. There's going to be spots of communion. You can take this piece of bread that signifies the body of Jesus that was bruised and beaten and broken for you and me, right? (laughs) And then we take this cup of juice that represents his blood that was spilt on that cross, that solidifies the covenant that he made between you and me. He says, he will never change his mind about you. Ever. Praise God. Who is like God? Where is another God like you that would do all this for us? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we have nothing... Nothing that we can offer you. Lord, that you made everything available to us because of the sacrifice that you made, Jesus. And so we praise you for that in this moment. I ask that we would just, that we would really see that, Lord, that we would hold on to this promise that you've given us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.